The primary purpose of your brain is to keep you alive. Once you appreciate that reality, you can leverage more of the science on how you and others can learn better. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 513. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the conversations that we often have on this show is how do we learn more effectively? How do we change our behavior? How do we frame a different reality? And so much of that, while we don't always think about our brains and the biology behind what we do and the science behind what we do, our brain, of course, is ever-present in how we frame the world. Today, I'm so glad to welcome uh, one of the top experts on brain science that will help us to really navigate how we can do better and also how we can honor the biology that we all have. I'm thrilled to welcome today Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa is among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University with appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. She is also chief science officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Harvard University. In addition to her best selling book, How Emotions Are Made, she has published over 240 peer reviewed scientific papers appearing in Science, Nature Neuroscience, and other top journals in psychology and cognitive neuroscience. She has also given a popular TED Talk with nearly 6 million views and received a Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience and an NIH Director's Pioneer Award. Lisa is the author of the new book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Lisa, I'm so glad to have dived into your work. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, the pleasure is mine. And as I was reading through this book and thinking about the brain, and of course, thinking about my own brain, one of the things that kept coming up for me is thinking about how we've all become more aware of some of our biology through COVID. And like a lot of people and a lot of families, we purchased one of those digital thermometers early on in this pandemic. And we've been measuring our temperatures often in the house. And the thing that really strikes me is every time I measure my temperature, it is exactly what it was the day before and the day before that. It only varies by like a tenth of a degree. And I've even tried, because this is what I guess people do when they're locked up in quarantine, I've tried to change it, like taking a hot shower or going outside in the cold or working out and taking my temperature. And it's it's always the same. I, I really can't change it. And this really, to me, gets to one of the key messages you have for us in your work is that the brain isn't necessarily, first and foremost, an organ for thinking. It's actually about something far more critical to just our core biology, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think it's a really lovely way that you just put it. Your brain's First and foremost, its job is to regulate the systems of your body to keep you alive and well. Like right now, for example, you know, you're sitting down probably listening to me speak and 
to you, it seems like that's where your focus is, that you're listening to my voice and maybe thinking about the things that I'm saying. But inside your body, as we speak, there is a really like a symphony of activity going on that has to be coordinated. And your brain's most important job is really coordinating that symphony to keep you alive and well. It's really fascinating. I mean, when you think about it, it makes sense. Like it's so obvious in some ways, and yet it is not something we regularly think about. And the part of the book that really captured my attention was the chapter that begins by saying, your brain predicts almost everything you do. And you write in that chapter, neuroscientists like to say that your day-to-day experience is a carefully controlled hallucination, constrained by the world and your body, but ultimately constructed by your brain. How does that work? Yeah, so you just mentioned two really counterintuitive things. And these are counterintuitive to everyone's experience, including mine. You know, the way we experience ourselves in the world is that we, you know, we, we sense stuff happening in the world and then we react. So we're reacting to things in the world, not predicting. And also our experiences lead us to assume that we are sensing first and moving second. But actually, if you peer into the brain as it's functioning, as well as actually just looking at its anatomical structure, how it's, how it's laid out, what you see is that what your brain is always doing is predicting your actions first. And as a consequence of those actions, it's asking itself, well, the last time I prepared this set of actions, what did I see next? What did I hear next? What did I smell next? And then it, your brain makes predictions about what sense data will arrive from the sense uh, organs in your body. And when I say your brain is making a prediction, I don't mean, first of all, it's important to understand this is happening very automatically. You don't have any awareness or experience of yourself as remembering or predicting. And predictions are not some set of abstract things. What your brain is actually doing is changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare a set of internal changes in your body, which will support a set of physical movements. And it, as a consequence of that, it's changing the firing of the neurons in your brain that are responsible for seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting to prepare an experience before the sense data arrive to the brain. And so when the sense data finally arrive, they are merely confirming the prediction or they're changing it because there's some information in those sense data that you didn't predict. And when your brain takes in new information that you didn't predict, we have a fancy name for that in psychology, we call it learning. If you think about the way that a brain is managing a body, it's, it's running a budget for your body, metaphorically speaking. The technical term for this is allostasis. That's a mouthful. So I'm gonna use a <laughs> metaphor of body budgeting. Your brain is running a budget for your body. It's not budgeting money. It's budgeting salt and glucose and water, oxygen, all of the nutrients and chemicals that your body needs to keep alive and, and healthy. And your brain is attempting to do this in the most metabolically efficient way because it turns out metabolic efficiency is very, very important, not just to evolution, but also to the health of individual 
animals, including human animals. Okay. So our brains predict as a way of reducing uncertainty, right? Remember when you hear a loud bang, if your brain had to grapple with all the possible things that loud bang could be, that would be an unreasonable amount of uncertainty because your brain would have to prepare all kinds of different actions at the same time, which is basically impossible metabolically and it's not feasible. So your brain's attempting to reduce uncertainty and make things predictable by in advance preparing your um, actions and your experiences. This is, this is a way to sort of create experience and manage a body in a very metabolically efficient way. But there is a limited amount of energy of resources that are available at any given point in time. And so if you create a predictable environment for people where people are following social norms, where they're polite to each other, you know, they, they don't always have to agree with each other, but they trust each other so that they can give each other critical feedback. If you make sure that your employees have enough to drink like water and, you know, are, are well hydrated, that they're, they have good work-life balance. So they're getting enough sleep. So these things, trust in others, sleep, a, a good amount of um, natural light, being well hydrated, all of these things make it more efficient to run a body budget, which leaves extra resources available for learning something new or innovating or being creative or uh. teaching someone else something. That is, if you create an environment where a person's body budget is reasonably solvent, then they have leftover resources to do the hard things that you want them to do. If, however, a person's brain is spending a lot of needless energy dealing with you know, the casual brutality of the way that people sometimes interact with each other or infighting or lack of trust uh, amongst coworkers or when, co when workers don't trust their, their bosses, if they're really sleep deprived and so on and so forth, then they're spending, their brains are spending a lot of energy on just maintaining a body budget. And there isn't that much energy left over to do really hard things at work. And the evidence is really clear, actually, when you look at research on productivity, particularly in the innovation and creativity sectors, the biggest predictors of, of productivity are things like how much sleep did, do employees get? How much do they trust each other and their, the executives um, in the company? How, how well hydrated are they? Do, you know, are they getting enough natural light in the day? And, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's remarkable that when you line up the findings, more than half of them really have to do with or impact this body budgeting function. It's, it's, it's really interesting. I had, obviously, we've, most of us have thought about budgeting from a standpoint of resources and financial budgeting organizations. But thinking about it through the lens of creating psychological safety and margin and work-life balance in order to allow that energy to then be used, that have that margin to be able to learn, is really fascinating that we, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. I should, I want to point out that there's a a guy named Andrew Mawson in, in the UK, and he's the one who brought this research to my attention. You know, he read How Emotions Are Made, my first book, 
And where I talk a lot about body budgeting and the consequences of, of having uh, of running a deficit in your body budget. And, you know, he brought my attention to this literature, to these findings. And then I sort of dove in and I was completely fascinated by this because it's, it's really applicable to schools. It's applicable to industry. It's applicable to, you know, even your, in your everyday life at home with your family, if you want people to be able to learn and flexibly adjust to whatever the demands are, you know, that they have to face, they have to have a reasonably solvent body budget. Because Dave, think about what you do with your actual financial budget when you're running a deficit. You slow your spending. Maybe you stop spending, right? Right. What does it mean for a brain to slow spending? Well, the two most expensive things that a brain does is move your body and learn. So slowing spending means you will feel fatigued. You won't feel like moving very much. So you you will be more sedentary. You will exercise less. Both things that down the road make it actually harder for your brain (laughs) to keep your body budget, you know, balanced. And you will also, when, when you are confronted with opportunities where you can learn, you won't. You won't take in those errors of prediction and, you know, that allow your brain to predict differently in the future. You'll just, your brain will continue to use what it knows from the past and you will be insensitive to the context around you. I'm thinking about this concept of budgeting and thinking about our energy. And I'm and thinking about it from not only ourselves, but like you've pointed out, how do we create that for others within our organization? Is it enough to take that significant step? I, you know, it, it, and it is a significant step to really create an organization and a space where people have that margin. And, and does learning then happen more naturally? Or is there also, in addition to that, an invitation to think and approach learning from a different way in order to allow that learning to emerge? Yeah, I think both is really necessary. And I'm really glad you brought this up because one of the reasons that I wrote this book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, is that it's a really, it's a little, it's a little book. It's a little book of essays. It's really short and sweet. I mean, the first book, How Emotions Are Made, is a is a it's a standard popular science book. It's 300 pages long. You know, it's written for people who read science. But this other book, this new book, is really written for people who are not so they don't think of themselves as interested in science. But yet my feeling is that if you just know a couple of tidbits about how your brain works, not only will you be, you know, astonished in the moment and maybe a little entertained, which we could all use, you know, everyone can always use that in their life. Yeah. Not only will you be able to, you know, have a conversation with your friends over coffee or at a dinner party to, you know, and dazzle them with these tidbits, you know, and be the life of the party, but you will actually be equipped to understand some things in your life that maybe you didn't understand before. For example, I, I'm not suggesting that we have to be nice, that everybody has to be nice to everybody else. I mean, that would be awesome, but I'm not necessarily saying we all have to be nice to each other. You want to be able to give your, your colleagues or your children or whoever you're, you're working with or you're interacting with, you want to be able to give people critical feedback, but you also want them to use that feedback. So they have to understand 
they have to know, they have to trust that you're not attacking them, that you are attempting to help. And that actually has body budgeting consequences right there, which you know we, we probably would need another episode to go, go into. But the point is that you have to understand that, first of all, when you have to trust other people enough so that you understand that when someone says something critical, they're really helping, they're not attacking. And you also have to understand that sometimes when you're feeling bad, it doesn't necessarily mean that something bad is actually happening in the world. When your brain is regulating your body, right, and your body is sending information back to your brain, you don't feel those every squirt of, you know, bile from your liver, every expansion of your lung, you know, you don't feel those things very, very uh, precisely. I mean, if you do, it means that there's something wrong, actually. And uh, you have my great empathy. Normally, we don't feel any of that. What we feel is more like these really simple feelings, not emotions, but really simple feelings like, I feel comfortable. I feel uncomfortable. I feel terrible. I feel pretty good. I feel worked up. I feel calm. Just really general physical feelings. And often when we're feeling really bad, it's because we're running a body budgeting deficit. Now, think of it this way. When you exercise, you can feel pretty crummy. That's because you're running a body budgeting deficit. You're spending a lot and you're going to replenish what you spent later and you get a great return on that spending, right? On that investment. So learning is kind of the same thing. When you have an opportunity to learn something that you don't know or take a chance on something that you're uncertain about, or when you receive negative feedback in the form of some kind of um, critical commentary that's meant as constructive criticism, you might feel pretty crappy, but that's an opportunity to learn. It doesn't necessarily mean that something is wrong. It might mean that there's an opportunity to change your internal model so that your brain is predicting better next time. And people who are really accomplished well into you know, their 70s and 80s and 90s really understand that feeling bad doesn't necessarily mean in, a, in, in the moment that something bad is happening. It might mean that there's an opportunity for an investment that will pay off in the future. Wow. And it, it really speaks to the distinction for me of what's happening in the moment to what you can do beyond that. And you write in the book that you may not be able to change your behavior in the heat of the moment, but there's a good chance that you could change your predictions before the heat of the moment. And with practice, you can actually make some automatic things more likely than others. When you see people who have done that better, and you mentioned some of the high-performing folks you know, in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who are still doing that, what is a starting point or a shift that someone can begin to make that gets them moving down that path? I would say everyone can learn a new skill. Learn a new skill. Something, it could be something, you know, not at work even, maybe something just in your, in your relaxation time. Learn a new skill or practice making experiences that you don't normally have. 
So for example, in How Emotions Are Made, I, I tell this story, which is a true story about how every day I would drive on the highway a short distance to, to get to work from my home. And for a while, there was a billboard that had a photograph of a little baby orangutan. Really, really, really cute. Really just, just totally adorable little, little baby ape. And the first time I saw this, of course, I can't look at it for very long because I'm driving. But I, it, the first time I saw it, it really filled me with awe. Just this, this tiny little creature who I've never seen before, but could give me so much pleasure in the moment. And it just got me thinking about, you know, the power of nature. And for a moment, I, I had this moment of feeling really like a sense of wonder and a sense of awe. And the really interesting thing about awe as an experience is that for a moment, you experience yourself kind of as a speck, like the universe, you know, so much bigger than you. And I experience this as a kind of a break for my nervous system, you know, because in the moment, if I'm a speck, then all my problems and worries are also speck-like. And so I feel, you know, for me, it gives me a little bit of a break. And I thought, gee, I wonder if I start, you know, the research suggests that the experience of awe is very, very helpful um, to dealing with stress. What is stress? Stress is just your brain predicting a big metabolic outlay. That's it. I mean, that's, that's really what stress is. You know, cortisol, which um, people write about as being a stress hormone, is just a hormone that gets glucose into your bloodstream quickly because your brain is expecting you have a big metabolic outlay, I, that, that you're going to move in some significant way or you're going to do something hard, <laughs> learn something hard or learn something effortful. So I thought, well, okay, well, let's, I'm going to test this research out and I'm going to cultivate awe five minutes a day, every day, to see if I can get really good at doing it and to see whether it really makes a difference. Like, can I call on awe as a skill? Can I cultivate it? Can I, you know, can my brain make it when I need it? And so I practiced, like I would go for a walk and I would see a little, you know, weed, ugly little weed poking out of a sidewalk. And I would practice seeing this ugly little weed poking out of the crack of a sidewalk as a thing of wonder, because it's, you know, it's a evidence of the power of nature over humans attempt to contain nature, right? Or I would see, you know, a dandelion spreading its little, you know, fluff all over my, you know, lawn. And, you know, instead of thinking, geez, now I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have a hundred thousand dandelions on my lawn <laughs> thinking that's a really, it's actually a really beautiful sight when you see these little tufts kind of floating in the air, um, and it's a really remarkable way of, of, of propagating yourself. And anyway, so I would just make these opportunities. I would take five minutes every day. And, you know, it turned out that what the evidence suggests in, in scientific papers turned out to be pretty true, I would say, for me. So I now have a whole library of experiences that my brain can reconstruct um, in the moment. These are not very different from predictions. So when your brain is imagining something, when you hear a song in your head that you can't get out of your head, when you, you know, I often ask people like to, to imagine something in their mind's eye, like an apple, like a red Macintosh apple that you would eat, you know, Dave, can you see a red Macintosh apple in your mind's eye? Yes. And can you imagine grasping that apple with your hand and 
sinking your teeth into it and hearing the crunch as you bite into it. Yes. And can you maybe even taste a little bit what the apple might taste like, like sort of tart, but also a little sweet and maybe juicy? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what your brain is doing right now is not any different from what it does when it's predicting. It's changing the firing of its own neurons. You can see that ghost of an apple and hear that crunch and taste that taste because your brain is actually changing the firing of its own neurons so that you have this experience in the absence of the actual apple. That's what a memory is. That's what a prediction is. That's what an imagining is. And when you practice making experiences for the purposes of predicting differently later, this is what you're doing. You're creating experiences for yourself that is training your brain, basically seeding your brain to predict differently in the future. Just five minutes a day, you can pick an experience and try to cultivate it just in the same way that you might do any other kind of exercise. Your brain is kind of a use it or lose it organ, just like a muscle. And this is one small example of how you can train your brain to predict differently in the future. Five minutes a day, the start for learning. Lisa, this is fascinating. I would like to extend the invitation to everyone to check out the book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. So I'm, ironically, I'm thinking about what you said earlier of how expensive learning is as far as our budget. And I did not read your previous book, but I was aware of it. And when your new book came across my radar screen, I was excited about it, but I also had the thought of like, wow, this is going to be a really heavy cognitive lift and a lot of work <laughs> to get around the neuroscience in my own brain about uh, preparing for our conversation. And I was so pleasantly surprised when I got into the book. Like, It is extremely accessible, and I love that you do such a wonderful job of storytelling and using analogies, uh, which, as you mentioned, aren't always perfect analogies in the book, but really do paint a picture of the biology and making it really accessible to us. So Thank you so much for that. And I know you also have a website up that has a bunch of resources for folks who have heard something today and want to really dive in more on the science and resources. Uh, where's the best place for them to go on the website to find that? If you just go on to lisafeldmanbarrett.com, which is my public website, there are tabs for videos, for public lectures I've given, for public articles I've written for the New York Times and for other magazines and newspapers. All of it is free. You can also find more information about my books there as well. And if you're really interested in the scientific papers, that there's also a link to my academic website, which has all of, our, all of my papers online available for downloading. Perfect. Thank you for that. We're going to link up all of it in the episode notes and also this week's weekly leadership guide for those of you who received that. Uh, Lisa, I have one final question for you. Um, you know, so much of your work is helping us to discover more about the science. You're just one of the top experts in the field. And, and I imagine that you also are learning a lot too and changing your mind. As you've been doing your work over the last year or two, let's say, um, what have you changed your mind on? Over the last maybe decade, <laughs> there, there was a big shift actually in my thinking. Originally, you know, I started life as a psychologist 
And then I retrained, you know, I started as a clinical psychologist and then I retrained in social psychology and then in cognitive psychology and then in physiology and then in neuroscience, you know, it's been a slow path. And originally I was really, really interested in these simple feelings of feeling pleasant or unpleasant, feeling worked up or feeling calm, these simple feelings, which you might call mood or which a scientist like me calls affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, affect. So I was interested in affective feelings and I was really interested in the way that affective feelings drive experience and influence, you know, what we do and how we make decisions and, and what we see and hear and smell and so on. By learning more about nervous systems, particularly from an evolutionary and developmental standpoint, I realized that really the question is, not so much about affect per se, but actually about the sense. It's really about your brain is making sense of the sense data from your body and from the world. So it's not the feelings aren't driving anything. It's really your brain's attempt to make sense of what's going on inside your body. That's really the major driver, which then leads you to this question of, so then what are feelings for? Like, why do you even have these simple feelings? How are they useful? And if you read my papers up until about 2006, 2000, maybe up to 2010, I would say, you'll see there's a lot of discussion of affect, not very much discussion about body budgeting. And then there's this major shift. And there's a major shift because I learned that the feelings themselves may not be causal of anything. It's really the underlying biology that um, seems to be driving at least a large part of what we experience and, and what we do. And this has sort of led me to the conclusion that things that we think of as mental, like thoughts and feelings and so on, it's not that they're unimportant. It's just that they have a huge part to them, which is biological. That is, you don't think and see and feel because your brain evolved to do those things. You think and feel and see in the service of regulating your body. And you don't, I certainly don't experience my life that way. I don't experience every feeling of happiness, every hug that I get, every insult that I bear. I don't experience any of these things in those terms, but that actually is what's going on under the hood. Lisa Feldman Barrett is the author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Lisa, thank you so much for your work. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. If this conversation piqued your interest about learning and the brain, I'd invite you to check out three additional episodes. One of them is episode 273, Essentials of Adult Development with Mindy Dana. In that conversation, Mindy and I talked about the different stages that adults tend to go through in their development and how you can support folks as a leader in your organization, depending on the stage that they are at, and also a lot of empathy in that conversation as well, to be able to meet people where they are, 
to be able to best support their development and learning. Episode 273 is where to go for that. I'd also invite you to check out episode 421, a great follow-up to this conversation, Help People Learn Through Powerful Teaching. My guest on that episode was Pooja Agarwal. She's a cognitive scientist and walks us through in detail some of the key tactics that you can use, especially when you're teaching and training, that will help people to learn and ultimately to be able to change behavior. And some of the common myths that many of us learned in school about cramming before an exam or certification, uh, we really uncover a bit and talk about how we can do better. Yes, things like cramming work in the short term, but if you really want people to retain the things they're learning and ultimately change their behavior, there's many better practices for doing that. Uh, One of them is retrieval practice, and we talk in detail on episode 421 on how to do that, a good follow-up to this. And then finally, episode 446 will also be useful to you, Four Steps to Get Training Results with my guest on that episode, Jim Kirkpatrick. Jim uh, and his organization have been leaders for many decades on helping organizations to get the most out of training through a very helpful evaluation model. Jim's dad, Donald Kirkpatrick, developed it. It has been the standard for many years for organizations on designing training programs and then evaluating them to make sure that they're getting the intended results. Oftentimes, when we hold classes, do events, we assume that if the evaluations look good, if people check the box for the smiley face, that they got what they needed and that the organization did well. And that's an assumption that uh, we probably shouldn't make. And there's a lot of ways we can do better in getting the kinds of results we want for our organizations by ensuring more that people are learning, that they're, it's actually resulting in some behavior change and that it leads to results that are important. If you are in the process of designing a training program or are in any way influential in helping your organization to think about learning and development training courses, episode 446 is a must-listen for you. All of those episodes you can find on the Coaching for Leaders website, and all of those episodes, including this one, are tagged under Talent Development. There's an entire section there on how to help not only yourself, but others to learn more effectively. You can get access to that and search the entire library by topic by going over to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership. When you do, it's going to give you access to the entire library since 2011, searchable by topic. Also, my weekly leadership guides, all the free audio courses, my interview notes, the member cast, and a ton more. You can get access to everything for free just by going over to coachingforleaders.com and you'll be off and running in just a few seconds. Next week, I'm glad to welcome back to the show, Tim Stringer. He is going to be returning to help us lead online events more effectively. So many of us have been on Zoom and other platforms uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And now we're going to take a look at how we can actually do a better job of leading events with large numbers of people and that have higher visibility for our organization. Join me for that conversation with Tim on how to lead events more effectively. Have a great week and see you next Monday.